Tired of searching your inbox frantically for that document or communication you need in the moment? Are legal matters slipping through the cracks? Docket can help. Docket helps legal departments seamlessly manage all matters from a singular platform. To learn more and schedule a demo, visit getdocket.co today. Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-host, Alex Lawson. Hey, Amber. We are down one co-host today. Bill Donahue's off for this week. We are, um, and we uh, will miss him. I would have uh, loved his thoughts on the topic we're discussing today. As you can probably imagine, uh, if you've been watching the news or talking to your friends and family, uh, we have an entire show, uh, mostly an entire show, devoted to... um, the topic of police brutality and, of course, the protests that have um, sort of swept across the entire country and, in some cases, um, uh, in other countries, about uh, a response to that. We have a lot of different uh, ways to talk about it, and I'm excited to do that. Yeah, I think, um, you know, of course, this is what is on everyone's mind, and we thought a lot about what we could add to the conversation that would be right. useful for our listeners to hear about. And one of the things that I think will be really great is an exploration of qualified immunity and how that doctrine is playing into how police brutality is handled in the legal system. So we have a really um, good guest to walk us through that whole issue. It's a professor, uh, William Bode. So he'll join us a little later on. Uh, yeah, um, I'm excited to talk to him. Uh, but as you can imagine, like... Like you say, Amber, there's a million different ways to sort of go at the things that have been developing over the last several days. Um, we are, of course, as as you know, if you're listening, a legal news podcast, and the legal community um, sort of made its presence known um, in these events in ways both obvious and not so obvious, which we'll talk about. Um, but the very first thing is that, I mean, I think the one thing, as we've seen this stuff play out um, in the wake of the uh, Minneapolis uh, police departments, uh, police officers killing of George Floyd and the protests that arose thereafter is that there have certainly been protests about police brutality before, but the thing that really I think is making a lot of people take notice is the sheer scope of it. I had mentioned that there were protests in all 50 states, multiple cities within those states, even in other countries. And I think that that's created this like, you've sensed like an urgency to engage with the issue that you don't always see, um, whether it's on social media or just in the culture at large. Um, yeah, like, I think that's actually yeah. really important because, you know, we're talking about George Floyd and his death that sparked this current wave of protests, but we all know a lot of names that we wish we didn't know. I mean, we know Trayvon Martin and Ahmed Aubrey and Sandra Bland and many others that have not sparked the level of protest we're now seeing. And I think it's really showing that this is a nationwide problem that people are addressing on a with a nationwide outcry. And that yeah. applies to law firms, too, that they're feeling compelled to, to speak out about this. Yeah, and we saw some of that this week. Abra Coe, uh, uh, the industry reporter um, who we name-check all the time, um, wrote a really interesting story about various firms putting out statements that nodded in some way to the tragedy and the ensuing sort of unrest that's come out of it. A couple of them 
Um, and, and this is not an exhaustive list, but a couple of the big ones are Boy Schiller, Hush Blackwell, Denton's, Jackson Lewis, a couple of others. Um, many of those firms, uh, Aber reported, um, also sent out sort of internal communications to their staff and pledged to sort of begin to reassess um, some of their pro bono efforts toward that. And it, we, we should say, I mean, merely putting out a statement is not there's there's been like a vetting of corporate statements that people put out for this stuff um, and whether they are sufficiently complete and things like that. But it is pretty rare. Um, a lot of sort of industry watchers told APRA for them to uh, even acknowledge something of this of this nature, which I think speaks to, like, as I was saying before, the sort of urgency of the moment. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, well, on a... Go ahead, maybe, yeah. Yeah, maybe we should talk a little bit about what's in the statements. Is it just them condemning... Um, the the systemic oppression of of African Americans, or is it more concrete than that? They they vary. I mean, they 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 definitely make a point to prioritize the the the, the racial violence element of the of the issue, and like and that the you know action by the police is at the root of it. I mean, I, I'm not going to sort of parse every single statement. Also, yeah. should be, but I mean, it's 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 worth reading about and looking into if that interests you. Um, worth noting, I mean, we've talked on this very show that some of these, uh, these firms and others have struggled with their own internal diversity efforts, which I'm sure is the subject of, of a lot of conversations with, um, uh, African American, uh, attorneys within those shops, but that, um, is perhaps something we can explore on another day. Uh, just wanted to note that, but, um, I mentioned that there was a lot of those statements nodded to pro bono efforts. Um, and I wanted to talk about another story from our own Nadia Dreed. Uh, she wrote about what is basically um, a groundswell of attorneys across the country that basically mobilized to provide legal services and representation for the many people who were arrested at various protests and demonstrations all around the country. I think this is a really interesting story because and maybe this is what I was trying to get at, this is one area where lawyers can immediately make a a concrete impact on what's going on. And these protests were so widespread and so many people were arrested. There's plenty of opportunity to to pull out some pro bono hours there and get involved. Right. Um, The latest tally as we record on Thursday from the Associated Press, they're tracking the arrests um, from protests and demonstrations, 10,000 people have been arrested as of Thursday. Wow. Um, that's quite a large jump from the people, from like just, just the normal, like many standards of deviation from the amount of people who are arrested on a daily basis or whatever. Um, and Nadia did a great job just kind of pulling together stories from attorneys from across the country um, who felt compelled to drop what they were doing and focus on representing these people, um, or if not drop, just kind of add something else to what they were doing. Um, much of this played out on Twitter, as you can imagine, like so much of this has been doing. Uh, Nadia spoke to uh, a criminal defense attorney in Georgia whose name is Lawrence Zimmerman, um, who's represented people like Gucci Mane. Um, he put out... Huh. Uh, he put out an open call with a tweet basically saying he would provide pro bono support for anyone who was arrested in the Atlanta area. That's where his practice is. Um, he told Nadia he was, after he sent out that tweet, he was flooded with nonstop calls, worked over the weekend to pull something like 100 Georgia attorneys to assist him in this effort um, to begin uh, representing people who came in for various, you know, whether, whether it's an arraignment or their or, or pleadings or whatever stage of it that they were at. 
Um, Nadi also spoke to a woman named Akila Green, who's actually now a comedy writer. She writes for I a know, show on HBO I know and a couple other name. things. Yeah, she's really interesting. Well, you'll, I mean, Amber, she bills herself in her in her Twitter bio as a recovering lawyer, which I've heard you describe My yourself as. My favorite thing I like to say. So, right. Yeah, That's yeah, a good so, connection yeah. there. Uh, like I said, her name is Akila Green. She used to work at K&L Gates. Um, and she basically, she basically, um, you know, put put her lawyer hat back on. I suppose I, I guess she's still barred um, in California after the L.A. chapter of the National Lawyers Guild put out a call for assistance in that region. So you can see there's quite a um, quite a quite a quite a wide variety of the type of people who are willing to lend their hand here. Yeah, I mean, is this people that traditionally? pick up um, some of these criminal type charges or is this across the board for lawyers? Yeah, I mean, it, it, from what I can tell, and like I said, everybody should read Nadia's story. It was very informative and, and cast, a, I think, a pretty wide net on the types of things we're talking about. It really reminded me a lot of the, um, uh, lest we forget, we're still in the middle of a pandemic and doing this kind of stuff sort of on the fly is not easy when everybody's uh, in a yeah. varying degrees of economic crunch or whatever. But it did remind me of the early days of the COVID effort I've mentioned this before, but my wife is a is a doctor and she's a cancer doctor. And it quickly became, well, now you're a COVID doctor, at least for a couple of weeks, <laughs> sure. you know. Um, and so that was very interesting. And like there were even things about like sort of medical students being like graduating early and going into COVID service. And that's what this reminds me of. Nadia talked to people who work in areas like family law, entertainment law, a bunch of other uh, practice areas who, who felt sort of com- you know, compelled to brush up on criminal defense or at least assist criminal defense attorneys if they don't have specialty right. in that, sort of get in the game. And I think that, um, you know, like I've like like we've been saying here, that sort of demonstrates the urgency of the moment. You see it all over your social media feeds. It's all over the news. And for um, a pretty good amount of lawyers here uh, that, no- that Nadia spoke to, it really um, uh, stirred something within them to uh, uh, provide their services. Yeah. um, For the second thing that we're talking about today, I want to stick with talking about how attorneys are reacting to the situation. But (laughs) uh, this is a bit more of a controversial choice instead of just pitching in with pro bono help for people. Um, I want to talk about uh, two attorneys that were actually charged in connection with a firebomb attack on an NYPD vehicle um, for throwing basically a Molotov cocktail into a police car during some of the more violent parts of protests Saturday night in New York. Yeah, um, it was an empty car, which I'm sure you'll get to. But um, just I don't want to like just right out of the gate. I mean, I'm glad not, you did that. I I don't want people to think it was <laughs> not um, an excuse or a caution. We, we will but, yeah. we will talk about what's happened. Let's 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 just be clear. Um, now what? But I mean, this I have some thoughts on what this kind of tells us. But like, let's talk about what happened. These are two attorneys yeah. who are working their own way. They're on the other side of the legal system now. Yeah, let me um, just run down yeah. the sort of story of what happened. And this is according to what the um, attorney for the Eastern District of New York has said in some of the filings, um, because those those two attorneys have been charged. So it was just before one o'clock in the morning on Saturday, an attorney named Aruj Rahman hurled a Molotov cocktail into a police vehicle and then fled with a, an attorney named Colin Ford Mattis. He's a prior cashman associate and he was driving a car. She throws the cocktail, Molotov cocktail, gets into this van and they drive away. Um, they probably didn't realize that there were police surveillance cameras capturing the area. Yeah. And they saw Raman getting out of that van and going over to the police car, lighting it on fire, throwing it in what was already a broken window in the car. Um, and then she, like I said, got back in the van and left. The police caught up to them not long after. They hadn't gotten very far. 
Mm-hmm. In the van, they had materials to build a bunch more of these firebombs. Um, you know, the things you would imagine. Bottles, lighters, some uh, toilet paper soaked in gasoline, that kind of stuff. Um, and subsequently, they've pieced together that they were driving around the late night, more violent parts of the protest, handing out these Molotov cocktails to people in Brooklyn. That's that's possession with intent to distribute if they get you there. Um, but uh, who do we have? Do we have an idea of like the time. So, I mean, they're attorneys. We talk about attorneys. I don't mean to, you know, it's there are many number of people who've been arrested for yep. any number of things. We talk about it's it's we've I'm sure there were attorneys who protested who did nothing. But this is obviously newsworthy. Do we have a sense of like who? Like what? What kind of work yeah. these people did, or their just I mean, general bios? Just for just the general interest of being curious about who would take it this far instead of yeah. the peaceful protests that many many people were involved in. Yeah, um, I have just sort of some basics. Um, both of these attorneys are in their thirties. Raman was admitted to the New York bar just this past June. She went to Fordham Law School, and she's a human rights lawyer. Mattis, the one that works at Prior Cashman, he was the one that was driving the van. He's an associate at Prior Cashman in their corporate group that advises startups. So a pretty straight-laced corporate legal job there. Mm-hmm. Um, he previously worked at Holland and Knight. He graduated from Princeton undergrad and NYU law school. Uh, he's only been barred since 2008. So they're both very early in their legal careers. Um, I think if people are listening, they might guess that if, if you're out at one in the morning protesting. it Sure. Stands to reason you, you might be uh, on the younger side, and that's true in this case. Did the firm say anything about it? Yeah, I mean, it's a really tough position <laughs> to to be in. Obviously, to have this news come out that one of your associates uh, burnt a, a police vehicle. So, Prior Cashman has suspended him, um, waiting to see how the criminal charges resolve. So he's on an unpaid suspension right now. Mm-hmm. He was already furloughed because the firm um, has taken some cutting measures in sure. light of COVID-19. So he was already uh-huh. not actively at the firm at the time this happened, but now he's officially suspended. And Prior Cashman's managing partner is a man named uh, Ronald Sheckman, and he said this. As we confront critical issues around historic and ongoing racism and inequality in our society, I'm saddened to see this young man allegedly involved in the worst kind of reaction to our shared outrage over what had occurred. So, you know, it's a it's a tough spot to be in there. Um, both of these attorneys that are facing these charges, um, they have gotten offered bail and they're on home confinement while they wait for, for for further proceedings. Um, They face a minimum of five years in prison and it could be up to a max of 20 years. So pretty stiff penalties for these actions. Yeah. I, like we say, they'll they'll work their way through the legal system. And then if it, you know, if something I'm, I'm I'm sure we'll keep, keep our eyes on it. Yeah. One thing that sort of struck, stuck out to me though, when I was reading, and obviously this got a lot of run in like the legal industry press, not just us. um, But it was like I think this speaks to you know there's a lot of there's a lot of good and bad faith discussion about the nature of protesting going on right now um and what constitutes good and bad behavior in these regards and I would just say for like when protests turn violent you know in in quotes however you want to define it there are certain assumptions made about the type of people who are responsible for doing that and I would just say like you know this is I mean these are highly educated, you know, yeah. professionally accomplished people who did this. And that's not to render, you know, whatever, a guilt or innocence verdict. That's not for me to say. But it just goes to show the sort of, um, 
the different types of people who feel very strongly about these things. I do I think I that's why say. some people were really surprised to hear this news. I think also in part, um, less about just being an educated uh, person, is their specific education is about what's lawful and what's not lawful. So they presumably went into these actions fairly aware of how severe the consequences could be. So I think that really surprised people um, to hear that it was to barred attorneys in New York City. This week, Pro Se is brought to you by Docket. Are you tired of searching frantically in your inbox for that document you need in the moment? Are legal matters slipping through the cracks? Docket can help. Docket gives legal departments a seamless way to manage all matters from a singular platform. To learn more and schedule a demo, visit getdocket.co today. George Floyd's death at the hands of Minneapolis police has led to charges against several officers. But prosecution of cops is rare, and even rarer still are successful suits brought by the victims themselves. Just why is it so hard to hold the police accountable? We're joined today by Will Bode, a professor at the University of Chicago Law School who can help walk us through how the doctrine of qualified immunity has insulated the police. Welcome to the show, Will. Thank you for having me. Yeah, um, it's a really fraught time right now. And I think qualified immunity has come up in the news a lot, but people might not really understand what that doctrine even is. And I know it was created by the Supreme Court. So can you tell us what it does and sort of the history here? Yes, absolutely. So uh, so when a, when a police officer or any government official you know, does something illegal, uh, there are two possibilities. They could be criminally prosecuted by the government or they can be sued by the victims or their families for for what they've done wrong. Uh, criminal prosecutions, you know, are rare and hard to get. We've seen a lot of that, uh, but you know, it's easier for for the victims to be able to say, you know, we've been wronged. We want to be able to sue. So, qualified immunity is a doctrine that that the Supreme Court has created in those cases to make it to make it harder for those lawsuits to succeed. Uh, and now. At the risk of a three-sentence history lesson, uh, in 1871, Congress enacted a statute, uh, the Ku Klux Klan Act, that says that whenever a state official violates the Constitution, you can sue them. It doesn't say anything about qualified immunity. There was no doctrine of qualified immunity when that statute was enacted. A hundred years later, in 1967, uh, Chief Justice Warren, uh, Earl Warren of the Supreme Court, sort of created the start of this doctrine in a case called Pearson versus Ray, saying, actually, you, the officer can only be sued if he's acted in bad faith. And then in 1982, the Supreme Court kind of rephrased that to say you can only uh, get damages against a, an officer if they've violated what's called clearly established law. Not enough to violate the Constitution, but it has to be clearly established. Um, and, I mean, that's sort of how it came to be. And I know there's been a lot of talk this week about the circumstances of the death of George Floyd and others um, and about the broad protests that have, that have um, popped up in the wake of that. How has the doctrine, I mean, you, you, you've walked us through how the doctrine ca- came to be. How has it played out sort of in practice when courts have had to tackle it? Yeah, so, uh, you know, civil rights litigation is really complicated. There are lots of different doctrines that make it uh, hard to succeed. And qualified immunity is just part of the picture. But it's a part of the picture that that 
definitely makes it a lot harder to to recover against, especially against police officers or in sort of situations that are really kind of fact specific. Um, so to take the the Supreme Court as an example, um, since the the modern test was created in almost forty years ago, the Supreme Court's had more than thirty qualified immunity cases, and in all but in all but two of them, they've said the law was not clearly established here and given the officers immunity. I mean, it's it's really interesting to I mean, you talk about a set of fact-specific cases, even outside the context of litigation, it's, I mean, there has to be a specific set of facts for this to sort of gain traction, even in the mainstream sort of collective conscience, which is to say it often has to be filmed, um, which um, is, is is interesting to me just in, in, in terms of finding the right set of facts that might lead to a sea change here. But Amber, I think you can, we can talk a little bit more about how the, how the current court might approach it. Yeah, I mean, I think my question, since uh, we're talking about how fact-specific it is, and you pointed out that the Supreme Court has only found that qualified immunity doesn't apply in two cases, to me that sounds like the the doctrine's not working as intended. I don't think when it was originally put in place, they expected it to be as sweeping as it's turned out to be. So how did we get to that sweeping point? And what are what are scholars saying right now about whether or not it is working the way the court thought that it would? So I think it's hard to find any one case or any one time it suddenly it suddenly went wrong. Uh, yeah. you know, the sort of the nature of common law doctrines is like each case kind of moves it a little bit, and then you suddenly turn around and, and realize you're very far from where you started. Um, but there is, I think, a growing consensus, not not unanimous, but a growing consensus among scholars who study this area that that something has gone wrong, that the doctrine has gone has gotten too far. It's no longer qualified immunity. It's it's almost unqualified immunity. <laughs> um, and that, that the court needs to step in and, and do something, although we probably would disagree about what. So what about the Supreme Court justices that are sitting themselves? I mean, I, I know that we've seen some of them actually just say what they think about where qualified immunity is currently sitting. Yeah, so it's it's a funny uh it's a funny uh combination of different parts of the court. So Justice Thomas, one of the most conservative justices in the court, has written a separate opinion saying the doctrine doesn't really have a historical basis and the court should reconsider it. Justice Sotomayor, joined by Justice Ginsburg, two of the more liberal members of the court, have said the doctrine has become much too one-sided, it's not really operating as originally intended, and the court needs to do something to sort of to to scale it back. Uh, the justices in the middle haven't really said anything. Yeah, well, that is an interesting set of bedfellows that don't like it. But you you rightly brought up the the reasons that people would guess as to why. I mean, Thomas is like, I don't like when courts make things up, and the more liberal justices are like, well, I'm okay when courts make things up, but this one went way too off the rails of of where it started. Right. No, I, there's a funny. You know, is the problem that it's made up, or is the problem that it's made up badly? Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, th- there's a lot of interesting sort of things, and we'll, we'll t- we can talk about some of the uh, uh, qualified immunity related petitions that are pending before the court. Now, um, you've you've outlined the sort of two extreme. I mean, I'm not whatever extreme, but the two flanks of the court who both have sympathy for revisiting this, which kind of raises the question of who is actually for it. And basically, that's a long way of. <laughs> That's a that that's a long way of asking. Um, I know no one ever really likes to play Supreme Court tea leaf reader, but do you think there are any cases pending before them that have a set of facts that are more amenable to being taken up in this term? So I mean, it is, it is really hard to say. Uh, there are no facts about the future. 
Um, you know, I, <laughs> yes. I guess I, I'd say there are a couple of the cases that are pending over the court that strike me as particularly uh, outrageous. Yeah, uh, I, I want to talk about like a couple of the fact patterns here because it's important to articulate what we're talking about. Yeah, um, just to, sort of at a gut level, like something must be must be wrong here. Um, so one is a case called West versus Winfield, where uh, officers were looking for a fugitive. They thought he was inside uh, somebody else's house, his girlfriend, I think. Uh, so they went to the house. It was locked. Then they see her, the homeowner, walking up the street and say, "You know, can we go inside your house to look for this fugitive?" And she says, "Sure," and hands them the keys. Uh, they go to try to open the door. It doesn't work because the door is like latched shut. Yeah. So. They do what anybody would do once the door is latched shut. They go get grenade launchers and fire tear gas grenades through the windows of the house, rendering it uninhabitable for weeks. Thought, wow. Thought for sure you were going battering ram there, but you went for <laughs> grenade Just launcher. cut to the chase. Okay. Uh, by yeah. the way, by the way, he was not there. I, you uh. know, it, it doesn't really matter to, to the reasonableness of the search. So the... You know, under pretty well-settled doctrine, you can't go into a house without the consent of the homeowner or a search warrant or an emergency. Yeah. And they, they didn't have an emergency. They didn't have uh, uh, a warrant. So the Ninth Circuit said, well, you know, did she consent to this when she gave him the key? Did she sort of implicitly know the next step was going to be the tear gas grenades? Right. Hard, hard to say, but we'll give qualified immunity. Tough to think anyone consents to tear gas grenades in their home, but sure, yeah, that that one seems like... A no-brainer right. to take up if they want to revisit this issue. What other ones are on your radar that are currently pending that they could grant cert? Sure. So another one, and and yeah, I apologize for talking with these facts so casually. I remember I talked about them with my students a couple of weeks ago, and you know they, they were shocked as I just started yeah. you know mentioning them. But you, you read enough of these cases, and and it's hard to be surprised. So another uh, another case is from the Eleventh Circuit called Corbett versus Vickers, where the police again were pursuing a, a fugitive, mm-hmm. uh, and he apparently got into the backyard of a house. So the police went out of the backyard, and there were a bunch of kids, like ten and eleven, having a having I think a birthday party, a party. And the police yell at everybody to get down, and everybody does get down. Um, and then the family dog comes up and starts kind of sniffing one of the officers. Not threatening, as far as we can tell, but just kind of sniffing one of the officers. And the officer doesn't like that, and so he tries to shoot the dog. Uh, he doesn't hit the dog. He hits one of the kids oh, um, and seriously injures one of the 10-year-olds by shooting him in the leg. Wow, um, bad to worse. Tries to shoot a dog, ends up hitting a child. I mean, he, these really tug at your heartstrings, these stories. I mean, they're, they're yeah, they, really wild. And they do, I think they feature the nice sort of intersection of, of sort of legal technicalities and common sense. Yeah. So the 11th Circuit said, well, it's just not so clear because do we think about this as a dog case or do we think about this as a child? You know, he didn't hit the dog and he didn't mean to shoot the kid. So we don't really know which box to put it in. So I guess there must be qualified immunity. Um, wow. That's, I mean, it's it's interesting to hear you lay out the, that's, that's an a particularly striking set of facts. And that's an example of like, I mean, I was kind of getting at this before, perhaps inelegantly so, that that's something that, you know, casual people never heard of that case or people who don't like, aren't like really following qualified immunity as a matter of law. But these kinds of things happen all the time. Um, now, you, I'm interested to know your answer to this question because you clerked for a brief time for uh, Chief Justice Roberts. Is that right? I, I did, yeah. And I know that he sort of, doesn't like to, I mean he he doesn't like to make sort of a lot of sweeping changes he takes a very sort of like not intrusive view of the role of courts and things like that we're many days into uh I don't know you know a cultural political shift whatever you want to say about the topic of police brutality police violence and you know the consequences for that violence is there any role you see in the sort of current political climate 
weighing for or against taking up any of these cases? Or is that something that this court will partition off? Or what's your read? Yeah, I mean, that's that's obviously, that's especially hard to say. I, I think most of the time they don't, you know, they, they don't, they, they try not to be immediately responsive to, yeah. to public opinion. You know, they see themselves as as having a sort of much longer vision, right? Their mm-hmm. question is, do these doctrines have a basis in law and is it our job to get rid of them? And the fact that a lot of people are angry right now sort of doesn't matter that much one way or the other. Um, I mean, they're human. You know, I'm sure they. I'm sure they're aware of what's going sure, on. Sure. Yeah. They. I. I would imagine they read the newspaper. I can't confirm that myself, but I would assume <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even even if they didn't read the newspaper, you know, they, a lot of them uh, either live in Washington D.C. or very sure. nearby. So yes. They're, yes. They're yeah. Aware. They're seeing it yeah. all around. I mean, that that does leave us in a bit of a pickle, though, if these qualified immunity cases do rise up to cert petition level fairly steadily, but they don't take a lot of them and have often sided with qualified immunity as a doctrine and as something that was uh, applied properly. Um, What are we left with? I mean, is this going to be the kind of thing that the courts maybe can't redress? Maybe we have to go through the legislature instead. Yeah, maybe. I mean, so the, so the court, the court could, uh, the court could, decide to take the doctrine or even decide just to sort of like pare it back a little bit, you know, to say in one of these cases, this has gone too far. We're or not even saying, give it like a current read, you know, like you say, it's been several decades, even since they thought about it or talked about it. Yeah. So they could just say, look, you know, to be clear, like you can't uh, try to shoot a, a defenseless dog and accidentally hit a defenseless <laughs> kid, you know, or, or whatever. But Congress could, could change it. I mean, this all comes from an interpretation of a statute Congress wrote. Mm-hmm. So Congress would have to add, you know, no more than a sentence uh, to the statute to say that qualified immunity either isn't there or is dramatically reduced. I think legislation was introduced maybe today uh, by Representative uh, Justin Amash. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, he keeps posting on Twitter about how many new co-sponsors he has. So yes. I guess it's got at least some momentum. Yeah, I think we're going to have to play that traditional game of which branch of our government can address this issue first, because it does seem like there's broad agreement or at least growing agreement that someone needs to take another look at this doctrine. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, so do I worry about the opposite? I do worry about a world where Congress thinks, well, I guess we don't need to do anything because the court could always step in and fix it. And the court thinks, well, I guess we don't really need to overrule right. our prior decisions because Congress could change them if they want to. And then nobody on, is actually you know. in charge of just, just seeing whether what we're doing makes sense. It survives I, through attrition, yeah. I yeah. fear that that could be correct. And I hate to end us on such a down note of maybe no one will do anything, but... I'm really glad you were at least on the show to explain to all of our listeners that maybe, like Alex said, maybe weren't following qualified immunity. These are going to be some cert petitions that we all need to start paying close attention to at the high court to see if they do take it up. I agree. Thanks so much for being on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Will. Even on weeks when we have a pretty serious show, we like to end with something offbeat. And uh, Alex, I know you're going to walk through one that toes that line. This show is just all serious all around, but it's outrageous. So that's why we're putting it in this offbeat section. I mean, look, I would have loved nothing more than to provide a small moment of levity after what we've uh, after the very important uh, but somewhat disheartening things we've talked about. Um, But this week, uh, sort of the news cycle demanded that we talk about uh, this 
a, a New York State judge who appears to be on the brink of termination uh, for calling a female attorney the C-word. The C-word, Amber. I, I just... I mean, if the listeners could see my face right now, I'm just, okay. I'm so, I'm so downtrodden in this Gets episode. better though. Well, gets worse, I should say. Um, <sighs> okay. So in, 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 so that happened some time ago in the appeal. The reason we're talking about this week is that there was an appeals hearing and the judge's attorney basically said that he shouldn't be fired for that infraction, saying that the, he used the C word in a way that could be considered a compliment Okay, I'm going word. on record. No, I'm going on record. It's never a compliment. It it cannot be. There's no. I know you're going to explain this to me, Alex, and what their logic <laughs> I'm, was. I'm going to yeah. I'm going to explain their logic. Thank you. Okay. Yes. I, let me be clear. Yeah. Clear. You're going to explain the logic they're employing. I'm not mansplaining this, to you about the c word. I cannot imagine anything we're going to talk about for the next couple minutes. It's going to make me say, "Oh yeah, that's oh a compliment." Uh, that's that's yeah. Oh, and and before someone. Uh, if, if if you're shouting at your podcast device of choice, uh, no, the c word we're talking about is not compliment itself. Um, <laughs> as, as, but not. anyway, anyway, let's uh, let's here here's what we're talking about. So yep. the judge in question is a man named Paul Senzer, and he has served in the Northport Village Court. It's a state court in Suffolk County, New York, since 1994. Now this gets a little. Uh, complicated, but stick with me. So that's a that's a part time judgeship, and it allows him to also practice as an attorney on the side, which he does. Um, and it was in that role that he made these comments. So in November 2014, Senzer was representing these two grandparents in a uh, child visitation rights dispute um, against their own daughter. So it's these two parents and the daughter over the visitation of this of this grandchild. Um, he was advising them on the likelihood that their daughter would sort of aggressively litigate the case. Um, and then he wrote this. This is a quote from the email, which is obviously, which is in the evidentiary record now. I don't believe she will give in, and I don't believe she will represent herself once we serve her. Her lawyer is a c- on wheels. Sorry for the profanity, and don't quote me. So be prepared. That's what he wrote in the email. He knew it was bad. He said, sorry for the profanity and don't quote me. There are so many other ways you can say a woman is aggressive. Sure. So many other ways that are not directly sexist because you wouldn't write that same sentence about a man. Uh, no. Well, no. Um, I mean, my head's going to explode. I mean, I certainly wouldn't. You're just, we're just two people having a conversation, but yes. Uh, in any case, um, so the lawyer that was the, the, the target of that insult is a woman named, uh, Karen D. McGuire. She works at a firm called McGuire Condon. Um, there were other emails sort of throughout this exchange where Senzer sort of sent gender specific epithets against McGuire, against the, 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 the daughter, the opposing party in this case, um, and even um, the, the individual who was overseeing the case. Um, anyway, long story short, the, the emails eventually come to light, um, and the New York State Commission on Judicial Conduct ruled last year that Senzer uh, should be taken off the bench, should be fired um, for, uh, for these comments, uh, and then he appealed, um, which is well, uh, what, why, why we're talking about it today. This all seems pretty clear to me so far. You read the quote, it's not good, and there were yeah. some others that were similar in tone. Yeah. Uh, but you said right at the beginning of this, he had a very creative way to explain this away, and that's what yeah. I want to hear about because I am dubious. Yeah, okay. Uh, I mean, 
this is a serious thing. I'm and like like some of these stories, I'm I'm laughing because I'm uncomfortable. Um, and I, <laughs> you're also so, uncomfortable bringing this story where your your female uh, coworker is like, well, what? sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do realize so, it puts you in the position yeah. to tell this mansplainy side of the story while well, I get to be outraged, but. Yeah. I am outraged. So. Well, it's just, it, it, it just especially gets funny when the lawyer now tries to like talk himself in knots about why this isn't a bad thing to say, which right. is really more what I'm laughing at. But in any case, um, so like I say, it's now before the state appeals court and Sensor's lawyer is a man named Michael Blakey. Um, and he is basically trying to uh, get the judge excused with sort of a formal censure instead of a removal. They sort of admit right. it's a bad thing to say, but it doesn't quite merit a firing, and in doing so, he attempted to basically soften the meaning of the judge's comments in the hearing, and uh, this is what he said. We don't think the gender bias is obvious, and we don't concede it. We could go into multiple interpretations of the words used, but I don't think that's necessary. I can just point out the worst one, the C word. It's not a C word by itself. It's a term of art. C on wheels which obviously refers to the aggressiveness of that attorney, it's a left-handed compliment is one way to look at it. Nope, it is not a way to look at it. It is not. I'm also very concerned by him saying that it's a term of art. Are people out in the world using that phrase a lot and I just don't know it? Because he said, Yeah, he said term of art. I mean... Uh, uh what? This, yeah, is, this is crazy. Yeah, he said it's a left-handed compliment. I'm sure you're offended as a woman. I'm offended yep. as a yes. left-handed person. <laughs> you should. We all um, should be offended by this. Uh, no, um, that's. I'm kidding. Uh, I. Anyway, uh, the so Karen McGuire, like I said, the the attorney who right. uh, was called this, gave um, a pretty hilarious quote to Frank Runyon, who wrote the story for us. Uh, in his reporting of the hearing, um, she said this sort of very obviously in a sarcastic tone. Isn't it every female attorney's dream to be called a C-U-N-T on wheels, right? Don't we swear our oath and say, this is what I want my legacy to be? Um, so she I thought speaks that was, for all of us yeah, women I that who have been in what are traditionally male-dominated professions and worlds and courtrooms. And um, this one is just so blatant. But I think part of the sarcasm in that quote back to Frank is probably that Many women have faced some version of this in their career. It's just galling. Yeah. Um, so, like I say, it's before the appeals court. Um, I'm interested to see what they say. Um, but <laughs> Me too. Yeah, there's a, there's a seven-judge panel, um, but uh, the chief judge is a woman named uh, Janet DeFiore. Uh, I think I'm pronouncing that right. And she didn't seem too sympathetic. Um, she took a she she didn't elide to the c word comment, but she did take a broad view of the range of gendered epithets that he used. Um, to uh, to many parties in the in the case, not just McGuire, but she wrote, uh, or rather said, um, counsel, I guess the problem I'm having is that Judge Sensor, in his representation of this client, denigrated every stakeholder in the system. But how do we keep a person who has engaged in that kind of conduct on the bench? What would we say? Censure is enough to erase all of the damage that's been done? So she seems to be asking what sounds like rhetorical questions to me, but we'll have to, we'll have to see how it plays out. I love that set of questions because, you know, we're bringing this up because it's so outrageous. Um, but it le- does leave the question of what are women attorneys who appear before him sure. when he's a judge to think of this if all that happens is that he's censured and he can carry on? It, it's, uh, wow, not a great one, but I will be interested to see how the court resolves it. Definitely. 
That'll wrap us up for today's show. Uh, thanks for being with me today, Alex, to talk about all of this stuff. Yeah, thank you. It was, uh, I, I, I hope we did a good job. I think so. Um, Tried our best, for sure. Yeah, So, uh, and that's all we can do. So uh, yeah. and th- th- thank you, Ember. Appreciate that. We also have a lot of other people to thank for today's show. Our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. Our graphic designer, Chris Yates. Our guest, William Bode. And contributing reporters, Frank Runyon, Stuart Bishop, Nadia Dreed, and Abra Coe. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, please leave us a written review on Apple Podcasts so other people can find our show. And if you want to know more about the things we've talked about today, check out our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you again next week.